Hello, everybody. I'm Daniel Barnett, and welcome to this episode of Employment Law Matters. It's a special episode today because I'm having a chat with a good friend of mine, Darren Newman, who I'll tell you a little bit more about in just a second, on two Supreme Court cases for 2020. Now, we had to decide which Supreme Court cases to talk about, and we've gone for two in the end that I think are particularly important ones. There is one awaiting judgment any day now called Morrison Supermarket, which is about vicarious liability for data leaks by employees. And there's a couple that are awaiting high hearing dates. There's Asda and Brearley on equal pay, and there's a case awaiting permission called Hextall, which is on whether it's discriminatory to pay male employees no enhanced share parent, shared parental pay if you'd pay a woman on maternity leave enhanced maternity pay. But the ones we're actually going to be talking about today are the cases on sleeping in for the purposes of minimum wage. Can you get minimum wage when you're sleeping in? And also the Uber case, which is being heard later in the year. Just before I introduce Darren, a quick thank you to somebody who left a lovely review on the Apple iTunes podcast store. This is from Employment Soul Northampton, and Employment Soul Northampton said, Absolutely brilliant podcasts. I found them particularly useful on my return to work from maternity leave when some aspects of employment law were a bit hazy. They really helped me regain my confidence with advising on such topics. Thank you so much for that. And if you send your name and postal address to podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk, we'll pop a copy of one of my books in the post to you as a thank you for leaving that extremely kind review. And now introducing Darren Newman. Darren is somebody I've known for many, many years. He's been working in employment law for ages, and he now runs his own training and consultancy business, explaining how employment law works to HR professionals and managers up and down the country. He's also a consultant editor for Expert HR, and you can find out more about what he does by visiting his website at darrennewman.org, darrennewman.org. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Hello, Darren. How are you? Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Yeah, not bad at all. Excellent. Now, the two cases that we're going to be talking about today are the Supreme Court cases on sleeping in for minimum wage purposes and the Uber decision on worker status, both of which are awaiting hearings later this year. In fact, the sleeping in cases, which is the case of Royal Mencap Society and Tomlinson Blake, is being heard later this week. So anybody who fancies watching it on the Supreme Court live, that enthralling uh, live stream to the Supreme Court, can listen in and decide whether we're actually making any sense or indeed whether it should be you and I arguing the case in the Supreme Court. Well, I think when we see the um, people who are arguing it in the Supreme Court, I will certainly back off. I would certainly, it was rather them that were doing it than me, but I will be enjoying watching it very much. I'll be getting my popcorn I'll be sitting there, I'll be glued to my computer screen as I see the arguments unfold. It's a two-day hearing, it's the 12th and 13th of February, though I think the 12th of February is probably where all the action is going to be. So let's just run through very, very quickly what the case is about. If it's okay with you, I'll just summarise what the case is in headline terms, and then I'll, I'll let you talk about what the implications are, what the main issues are, and which way you think the Supreme Court is going to jump, if you're willing to express a view. Is that okay? 
Oh, yeah. No, I've got a view. <laughs> OK, brilliant. So it's all about the minimum wage. We all know that everybody's entitled to be paid the minimum wage. All workers get the minimum wage. And the national living wage, which is the slightly different name for what is really the minimum wage for people over 25, is currently £8.21 an hour, going up to £8.72 an hour in April. Now, one of the big issues with the minimum wage is whether people are entitled to the minimum wage for time when they're on call. This applies in particular and most frequently to people working in care homes or in the care sector, because do they get the minimum wage when they're on call? Because they might be awake or they might be asleep. They might be on the employer's premises, or they might be off the employer's premises with their feet up at home, maybe in the cinema with their mobile phone on in case there's an emergency, irritating all the rest of the people in the cinema. Do their hours on call count when calculating if they've been paid minimum wage? Now, what the um, regulations of the National Minimum Wage Act say is that if they're doing actual work, they're entitled to the minimum wage during the hours when they're doing actual work. But if they're only available for work, it doesn't count. And they're not entitled to the minimum wage when they're only available for work, as opposed to doing actual work. So Darren, can you just explain what the issues were in the MenCap case and what issue the Supreme Court is going to be grappling with later this week? Yeah, the MenCap case is really interesting. It concerns care workers who sleep at the place of work, do a sleepover shift. And traditionally, what happens is They might work a normal shift during the day for which they get an hourly rate and then they sleep over. The idea is they're provided with a bed, some sort of place to bed down for the night and all being well, they would sleep all the way through the night without interruption, but they need to deal with anything that might crop up during the night. And the question is whether when they're doing that, when they're on the premises and they are waiting for something to happen, Is that them simply being available for work? Are they on call, but given permission to sleep? Because if they're on call and just available for work, the minimum wage regulations say that doesn't count as working time. Or are they actually working because sleeping on the premises, spending the night on the premises is the very obligation they have to the employer. That is the service that the employer is buying for that night. It's saying, I want you, the worker, to come in and sleep on these premises, I will get a benefit from that because I'm going to be meeting my regulatory requirements to have people on the premises. It'll help with insurance. It'll help with, you know, it's part of the service we're providing. If I ask you to do that, maybe the actual work you do is to come and sleep on the premises. And is there a philosophical reason why the fact that you happen to be asleep for most of the night should prevent you from working while you're asleep? Is being conscious a necessary element of working? I think it's a a really interesting philosophical question. The Court of Appeal ruled that they weren't working, that they were merely available for work, and they would only be working if they were actually woken and called on to do something, and relied on the policies that had been decided by the Labour government in the late 90s introducing the minimum wage as part of the Low Pay Commission report, said that sleepover shifts shouldn't count for the minimum wage. But that overturned previous case law that had suggested that it's a much more nuanced question as to whether someone is working or not when they're doing a sleepover shift. And so the Supreme Court will have an opportunity to look at the issue from scratch. It's the first time the Supreme Court's looked at the issue of what counts as working time for the purposes of minimum wage. And it can basically define for us what it is to be working. And is there some philosophical reason why just because you happen to be asleep, 
we can't treat that as working time. Which way do you think the Supreme Court will jump? Well, I would actually bet on the employees winning in the Mencap case. And the reason for that is I don't think the Court of Appeal, in its judgment, appreciated the reality of life doing a sleepover shift in a care home. I think it's very easy to say, well, obviously you're asleep, so that doesn't count as working time. But we're not talking here about people who are given a four-poster bed with Egyptian linen and whale music in the background, lulling them into a lovely night's sleep. They're often in quite makeshift bedrooms. They're often on camper beds. They can be working frequently during the night. They're not with their families. They, you know, If you asked them where they were going that evening, they wouldn't say, well, I'm going to be available for work in case I'm needed. They would say, I'm going to work. I'm going to do a shift at the care home. And I think the reality of their situation is that, of course, they're working when they do that. That's a hard form of work to do, I think. And people who say that you're sleeping, you, you can't possibly working, should try doing that job and see whether it feels like work or not. So I think the Supreme Court will go back to the earlier case law that had accepted that you can be working if the circumstances are right, even though you're given facilities for sleep. Now, you do a lot of work in the care sector when you're going up and down the country speaking to employers and employers' organisations. Is your view shared by a lot of care employers, a lot of care homes? Do they think that this Court of Appeal actually gave them a little bit of a bonus? Well, I, I think most of my client base tends to be local authorities who often do run care homes, but perhaps their care workers are on slightly above the minimum wage already. And so they've got a little bit of a cushion because remember, the minimum wage is always an average. You look at the total amount of work that somebody's done and you look at the total amount of money that they've been paid and you work out what the hourly rate is from that. So if you're paying above the minimum wage for a day shift, there's a little bit of a cushion to pay less than the minimum wage for a night shift because it'll all come out in the average. I think most people, when you talk to them who have experience of this, understand that working a sleepover shift is work. The problem is, of course, that financially, it is potentially catastrophic for some care homes if the Supreme Court goes that way, because they simply will not be able to afford to pay people the minimum wage for all of the hours that they're available and they're actually on site. And we would have to fundamentally rethink, I think, how we finance care if we started imposing that level of, that level of cost on people. So I think, I think that's going to be quite tricky. I should say as well, there is one other case that's potentially going to be in front of the Supreme Court. It's currently listed, though I believe that the claimant has some difficulty with funding, so it might not get argued, which is the case of Shannon against Rampersad, which is a slightly different case, and perhaps where the facts are more on the employer's side, where the employee was actually given a studio flat to live in above a care home on the basis that every evening he would be at home unavailable if needed between I think 10 o'clock at night and seven o'clock in the morning he had to be present and so there's another question about whether in those circumstances he was working all the way through his night shift I think the facts tend to be against him because he did that arrangement for many years without complaint working for a friend of the family and then the care home was transferred under Chupi to a new owner and he ended up being dismissed there was obviously a disagreement between them He turned around and then brought a back pay claim, claiming that for the entire duration of his employment back to the commencement of the minimum wage in 1998, he was entitled to be paid the minimum wage. And he's claiming a total of £239,000. I suspect that the Supreme Court will not want to come up with a ruling that will mean that he get that sum. So the Supreme Court might have a, a careful line to walk.
So if anybody fancies watching that being argued on the 12th and 13th of February, which is later this week, you're able to watch it being argued on Supreme Court Live, which is at www.supremecourt.uk. And for what it's worth, I agree with Darren's prediction. I think that the Supreme Court will allow the employees to win in the Royal Main Cap Society case. And in the other case, it's very much trickier because, as Darren says, the facts just don't encourage the Supreme Court to give the employee a huge amount of money. So if if we turn out to be right about that, Daniel, shall we come back and do another podcast and we'll do a lap of honour? And if we turn out to be wrong, we'll just never mention it again. We can. I actually did a talk about four years ago, and it was when the Unison case, the case on fees in employment tribunals, was going up the appeal ladder. And the Court of Appeal had actually said that Unison, who were challenging the legality of fees, lost their case. So in other words, fees in employment tribunals weren't lawful. And I stood on the stage and I pronounced from the stage, because the case was about to go to the Supreme Court, there is no way that Unison are going to win in the Supreme Court. And how wrong I was, because of course they did. Fees were abolished. And in fact, on the video version of that seminar, because I've still got the video version of it, I've edited out the words, no way. Uh, so it actually <laughs> now says, Unison are going to win in the Supreme Court. And I can prove that I know exactly what's going to happen before it happens. That's very wise. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that the employees in this case are represented by Unison. They're, they've brought the case to the Supreme Court. And I think they've done that, believing quite firmly that they're going to win. Good. Let's move to the other case, the Uber case, where I don't think Unison are involved. No, um, no I don't think so. This is the very, very well-known case on worker status. And whilst we have been seeing an absolute flurry of cases on employment status for gig economy workers in recent years, most of them have simply been employment tribunal level or EAT level. Uber, the full title of the case being Uber BV against Aslam is a court of appeal case where the court of appeal held by a majority that Uber drivers were workers with a dissenting judgment from Lord Justice Underhill. And the Supreme Court is hearing the case on the 22nd and the 23rd of July 2020. It always amazes me, Darren, how such complex issues can be condensed into a two day hearing. But then I suppose there are extremely lengthy skeleton arguments. And most of the work has been done in writing before anybody gets to their feet to start speaking. Yes, I think when you see really good advocacy in the Supreme Court, they're incredibly efficient about their timing. They never overrun. They wouldn't be allowed to be able to overrun, I think. They, they would actually be, be shut up. But they're incredibly effective at figuring out what needs to be supported in oral argument and what you can leave to the written submissions that you can rely on the Supreme Court having read. So do you want to say what Uber's about or shall I run through it? Well, I mean, yes, I think the first thing to say about the Uber case is potentially it's hugely complicated because it involves very, very detailed contractual documentation. But the central question is quite straightforward. The central question is when an Uber driver picks up a passenger and transports them, are they providing work for the passenger? In other words, are they working for the passenger or are they working for Uber? Is Uber some sort of employer with the Uber drivers as workers performing work on their behalf? Or is Uber merely an agent that puts drivers in touch with potential customers? So it's that triangular relationship where we're trying to figure out who the worker is actually doing work for. If they're doing work for Uber, then they're going to qualify for rights like national minimum wage and holiday pay. If they're doing work for passengers and Uber is just the software platform that they're using to get in touch with passengers, then they're going to be in business on their own account and they're not going to have 
any employment rights. And in fact, you mentioned rights such as minimum wage and holiday pay. Of course, we also know following an employment tribunal case, and it's only employment tribunal, so it's not binding, called Dewhurst and Revised Catch, which was decided a couple of months ago, that TUP apparently applies to workers, something that came as a surprise to many people, albeit when you read the judgment, you think that's probably quite correct. So it could be that workers if Uber drivers are workers and the Supreme Court reverses the Court of Appeal, also entitled to TUPI protection, which would be a big, big issue for a lot of organisations. Well, it would. But of course, if you're not an employee, then I'm not sure your TUPI protection amounts to very much. Because of course, you don't have a right not to be unfairly dismissed. So if you're just a worker and you get TUPI, you're not necessarily in a more secure position because someone who doesn't want to take on those workers can simply decide not to, unless someone's going to invent a completely new right that I'm not aware of derived from EU law. But I think basically a worker isn't necessarily going to be that much better off if GP applies to them. So in the Uber case, the Employment Tribunal looked at all the contractual documentation and all the contractual documentation said almost every paragraph, you're self-employed, you're self-employed, you're self-employed, we're not your employer, you're self-employed. And the tribunal said that the entire contract contained things like these are quotes from the judgment fictions and twisted language that didn't reflect the reality of the situation to what extent employment tribunals allowed to look at what happens on the ground rather than what's written in the contract well i think this could be what makes this case so important because there's a a case that is relied on in in this case which is brilliantly named called auto cleanse against belcher it's always good to have a case name that's easy to remember And that suggests that, or it specifically rules that, when a tribunal is looking at the contractual documentation, it is supposed to take into account the reality of the situation. And in the employment context in particular, the different bargaining power between the parties. So the fact that employees are not in a position to negotiate their contract, but simply have to accept what the employer has put in front of them, should make the tribunal worldly wise, is the phrase that's used in Auto Cleanse Against Belcher, about the possibility that what's written in the contract is not the real agreement between the parties. Now, that is a departure from the traditional way we would look at contracts, which is to say, well, if you've signed a contract, you're bound by what the terms of the contract say. And it takes a lot to persuade a court to look outside the terms of the contract and say, well, that's not really the reality of the situation. If autocleanse against Belcher is under challenge in this case, and I understand that one of the arguments that Uber is putting forward is that it was wrongly decided, or at least it should be taken much more narrowly than it's been taken by the tribunal so far, then that could really transform the way in which we regard the written documentation in an employment relationship. It could make it much more important and make it much easier for employers to define what the relationship is by making sure that their contractual documentation is clearly drafted. So I think that's one of the big cases that's at issue in the Uber decision. It's one of the reasons why Uber is going to be so important. So we know that the majority in the Court of Appeal held that the Uber drivers were workers. Can you explain the reasoning process they followed to get to that conclusion, Darren? Well, essentially, the Court of Appeal accepted what had been held by the tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal, that it was unrealistic to regard uber drivers as having a contractual relationship with their individual passengers when all of the relationship was mediated through uber's app so in other words the passengers didn't hail an uber driver didn't have any direct contact with an uber driver they booked the the ride through the uber app 
they didn't pay the Uber driver directly. They paid Uber through the app and Uber then paid the driver. And the courts have so far just found it unrealistic to think that those drivers are doing anything other than working for Uber, who is providing transportation services to the passenger. I have to say, I'm not entirely sure that that stands up. And there's a dissenting judgment in the Court of Appeal from Lord Justice Underhill that on balance, I think is probably right, which is that we've always regarded that triangular relationship as applying in the cases of taxi drivers and minicabs. And incidentally, we also see that triangular relationship in the contracts of many hairdressers who are essentially renting a chair in a salon. We see that triangular relationship. There was a case involving caddies in a golf course in Hong Kong. It was a Privy Council case. We're held to be providing their services directly to golfers with the golf course just providing the sort of introduction. And we saw it most famously in the case of Quashie against Stringfellows when a table dancer in Stringfellows restaurant, it really is a restaurant apparently, when a table dancer in Stringfellows restaurant was held to be working directly for the customers of the restaurant rather than for Stringfellows. So it doesn't strike me as artificial necessarily to regard Uber drivers as working for the passenger with Uber acting as a sort of go-between or agent between them. And I don't think the fact that it's all done through an app fundamentally changes that relationship. And there are many taxi companies now that use an app that's remarkably similar to the Uber app, but no one seems to be suggesting that those taxi drivers are going to be regarded as workers. So I think there's room for the Supreme Court to actually overturn this and go back to a sort of more traditional view of how taxis and minicabs work. It's a slightly ironic thing that Uber portrays itself as a big disruptor of this industry. But I did watch very carefully the submissions in the Employment Appeal Tribunal by Dinah Rose QC. And one of the points she was making was, you can analyze this relationship just like any other minicab firm. I think Uber's best argument is, we're actually just any sort of minicab firm. And I've heard it described in this way that uh, everybody accepted that minicab drivers are genuinely self-employed. And the only real difference between a minicab driver and an Uber driver is that the minicab driver holds the phone to their ear to hear where their pickup's going to be, (laughs) whereas the Uber driver holds the phone to their face. And that's not really enough of a difference to change employment status. I think that's right. When I get a taxi in the morning, I get a taxi from a normal taxi company, but I use an app. I don't phone. I book through the app. I pay through the app. And everything goes through in exactly the same way. I think it would be quite something if we started saying that everyone who's a minicab driver has entitlements to minimum wage and holiday. I think that would be a massive change in the economy. I would be surprised if the Supreme Court actually went for that. Mm. I'll say there is I, I, one other really interesting question in the Uber case, which is when is a driver working? And here we link back to our case in the Mencab case. So far, it's been held that an Uber driver is not only working when they're actually transporting a passenger, but they're working when they've got the app switched on and are showing that they're available for work. So in other words, an Uber driver can get up at two o'clock in the morning, switch the app on, and as long as they're within the region that they're sort of agreed with Uber will be their, their patch, if you like, then they will be counted as working. Now, if that's the case, then I think Uber will be done i don't see how their business model can possibly work because uber relies on lots of drivers logging in if it's got to pay every driver who logs in the minimum wage for every hour they're logged in i think their entire model falls apart although i do quite like the point made in the court of appeal and i think in the original employment tribunal hearing as well that it's ridiculous 
to say as Uber are driving that, in fact, Uber is nothing more in London than a mosaic of 30,000 small independent businesses all linked by a common platform. That doesn't really reflect the reality of the situation. Absolutely. So the point is that Uber was just going far too far in trying to allege that they've got 30,000 entrepreneurs who can all build their businesses as a driver. But as Lord Justice Underhill said in the Court of Appeal, that doesn't necessarily alter the fact that we have traditionally regarded people with their own car who are working through a taxi company as being self-employed. And the fact there's 30,000 of them, well, that just reflects the fact that London's big. Uber, as we said, is being heard by the Supreme Court on the 22nd and 23rd of July. And we will have to wait some months to find out what the final answer is going to be. Darren Newman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that was Darren Newman. If you liked what you heard, you can follow him on Twitter via at Daz Newman, D-A-Z-N-E-W-M-A-N, or go to his website, darrennewman.org, for more information about him. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on the iTunes podcast store, and we pick one person every single week who's left a review, read out their review, and send them a book as a thank you. If you don't subscribe, please do you can subscribe and get these podcasts every single Tuesday without fail at www.danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.